Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. Today, my brain is full of some very provocative ID Week sessions for you, since we're going to recap the highlights of ID Week 2022 to close out the Breakpoints season. I am really excited to review this content, but I'm even more excited that one, I finally got to use the word provocative on breakpoints. I've been trying to do that for about three years. And two, I am joined today by none other than the other three amazing breakpoints hosts, Julianne Justo, Rachel Britt, and Jillian Hayes. These women need no introduction. You, our faithful listeners, know them quite well, and you've heard them host this podcast with brilliance and grace over the past few years. However, I'm going to introduce them anyway, because I like them. So first, we have Dr. Julianne Justo, who's a clinical associate professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy and Outcome Science at the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy. She maintains a practice site in infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship at Prisma Health Richland. Beyond that, Julie is quite literally a super mom and super woman who she runs the ID fellowship program at USC, along with raising two fabulous two-year-old twins, Twins implies two. Sorry, there was a lot of twos there, Julie. But uh, they have their mama's sharp mind, kind soul, and very awesome dance moves. So, Julie, it is an honor to podcast with you. Thanks, Aaron. I'm super excited to be here. And thanks for making me sound so fancy. I got to say, I'm proud of my kids' dance moves. They are really cute. You are fancy. One day they will be at Jillian's dance school. Don't, don't you? Oh, worry. yes. Yes. So, that leads me to Dr. Jillian Hayes an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship clinical pharmacist at Duke University Hospital in Durham, North Carolina. Jillian, if you guys have listened to Breakpoints before, you know that she will be on Dancing with the Stars one day. So along with our theme, she will run a studio where she trains Julie's children. So keep a sharp lookout for this rising star. And also Jillian has, I'm sure, been in the best mood all week because the real USC, that is South Carolina, beat Clemson at home this past Saturday, snapping a 40-game home winning streak and leaving Dabo in tears. So we are all just very excited about this. Welcome to Breakpoints, Jillian, you, SEC, Gem, you. I mean, what do I even say after that? Like, my whole life is laid out in front of me. Julie, your kids are definitely, like, enrollees one and two. It'll be like dance moms, Woo-hoo. but psychologically healthier, and uh, it'll <laughs> okay, be good. a fun journey. And then, man, it's been a, a fun couple of weeks to be a Gamecock. I couldn't decide if I was going to hit you with a spontaneous rooster crow, but I'll decide to spare everyone because literally nobody <laughs> asked for that. But super pumped and uh, happy to be here. Okay, I shout War Eagle randomly all the time because I went to Auburn, for those who don't know, and people often just stare at me in the airport and what have you. So it's okay. You do you. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Rachel Britt is a pharmacy clinical practice specialist in infectious diseases at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas. Rachel is finishing her term on the Publications and Podcast Committee leadership team, where she served us fearlessly for the past two years, making, I can't even explain to you guys how many things Rachel does and makes them seem absolutely effortless. So she is a true hero and a star. Rachel's one of the best of us in the organization. She has quick wit. And my favorite thing about Rachel is she texts me all the time with these crazy Acinetobacter cases. I don't know. Her little pocket of Texas must have all this Acinetobacter outbreak, uh, which we'll talk about a few drugs for Acinetobacter today. But I love chatting with Rachel about all things ID. And also she was the one that told this entire team about the day we could sign up for Taylor Swift tickets. So she is the true 
MVP. Rachel, I am so excited to be co-hosting with you today. Thanks, Aaron. I'm excited to be here. It's familiar territory for me, but I feel like it's extra special this time sitting and looking at all of y'all's beautiful faces. Although I am sorry to our audience right now that they are not able to see what I see because it truly is a glorious sight. <laughs> that being our Zoom screen, which we should probably take a screen gab, grab and post it on Twitter, I suppose, since Twitter seems to still be around for better or for worse. For now. For now. Yes, for now. Okay, well, like we said at the beginning, today's episode is going to recap the highlights of ID Week 2022. Now, as we all know, ID Week 2022 was the first time we were in person since 2019, and it was back in the same location, Washington, D.C. So I'm sure I'm not the only one who felt this really interesting sense of deja vu when I arrived at the conference center. Like, I got there, and it it truly felt like nothing had changed. Like, I was like, did I just, is this just day seven of a conference from three years ago? But also everything has changed, right? And it was it was really interesting to sort through that. I don't know if you guys felt that in the air as well. Yeah, I'm like, I'm a little more tired. I got a few more gray hairs uh, and I'm back. Yeah, it was great. I had significantly more back pain at the end of each day than a few years prior, which was shocking and saddening for me. Um, but it was great to be back in person and to see everybody. I loved it. I actually had not been to an ID week since my PGA two years. So um, it was a, a fun time to, you know, experience, yes, the, the signs of old age, like really putting a lot of effort into what footwear I was wearing just to get to the conference, but also kind of, you know, professionally reflecting. It was very adorable and fun to see everybody in person. I walked up to Aaron and just clung to her without words. Didn't really, I'd never like hugged Aaron, you know, in person, but we've been through some things. So that was awesome. That is true. It was our, our first in-person meeting. Um, I, I, I also, like I appreciated the podcast family reunion photo. We managed to get out of it as well. I think that was a highlight for me. That is one of my favorite things. I liked at the end that Rachel goes, oh, I just realized we're in order. So of course we're in order. <laughs> I know it was a total JCPenney moment. Like this is, these are going to be our holiday cards, right? Biggest to smallest. I should have put you guys on my holiday card. Actually, I, I need to, I need to do that. Um, yes, I feel you at footwear. I traded my heels for some periodic table toms, this SIDP reception go around. So that is the vibe in 2022. And, um, it's, it's true guys, three years is a really long time to go without seeing some of your friends and colleagues. And it was really great having everyone back for this meeting. Three years is also a long time to go without really having a pulse on what's going on outside of the COVID space. And so I'm really excited today to talk through all of these non-COVID related new drugs, late breaking clinical trials, and just all the advances made in infectious diseases. I want to thank IDSA, Shea, SIDP, PIDS, and HIVMA, which are the five partner organizations of the ID Week conference for hosting such a great meeting. And then to our listeners, all of the content, if you registered for ID Week, or even if you didn't, you can register now actually to access the online content. It is available through March 31st, 2023. So we hope that this episode inspires you to take full advantage of going back and listening to any programming that you may have missed, including the sessions that we're going to talk through today. So we cannot fit five days into one hour of content, but let's be serious. This is probably going to be a 90 minute episode. That's okay. Um, but we're going to cover the following major sessions because we thought these were the most highly relevant for you guys as our audience. First, we're going to talk through the late-breaking clinical trials. 
Then we're going to go through the pipeline agents in the bacterial space. There were really great sessions on pipeline agents and antifungal and other spaces as well, but we've covered those on other podcasts. So we're going to focus on the antibacterial pipeline. And then finally, we'll wrap up with the, um, the session on practice changing clinical trials, which cover bacterial, fungal, and viral and featured our girl, Julie, as a speaker. So excited to relive that moment for her. And then finally, we will end with our, I feel nerdy segment where we each share the, one of the favorite new things we learned at the conference that may be a little, little new or unique, and maybe a session that wasn't, you know, um, something that immediately stood out. But when we attended it, we're like, wow, I learned something really cool today. So with no further ado, let's dive into the late-breaking clinical trial session. The first trial that we're going to talk about was the trial of ceftabipril versus daptomycin for staph aureus. Jillian, do you mind walking us through this very exciting trial? I would be honored. So yes, we will start with the eradicate trial. So this is septibipril compared to daptomycin with or without optional s for the treatment of complicated staph aureus bacteremia. This was presented by none other than Dr. Tom Holland, who's an associate professor in the division of ID at Duke University Medical Center. Uh, and for any of our younger audience members, this is not the same Tom Holland who is dating Zendaya and starring as Spider-Man. However, I think Dr. Holland is an Avenger in his own right when it comes to the management of Staph aureus bacteremia uh, and really, you know, a, a leader in the field. So this trial certainly doesn't require too much context, uh, but the TLDR edition is Staph aureus bacteremia is still bad. It still kills many people, even if it's less people than previous years. Uh, and we only have two FDA-approved treatments for Staph aureus bacteremia being vancomycin and daptomycin. It's actually been since 2006 since a new antibiotic has been approved for Staph aureus bacteremia. And I don't know about y'all, but when I started doing this math, I think I was in junior high when that happened. So like some things have occurred since 2006. So hopefully that will change soon. Uh, and that's why we're talking about this today. So the Eradicate trial, largest phase three study conducted for registration of a new antibiotic for Staph aureus bacteremia. Unlike the last trial that got DAPTO its approval in 2006, this study utilized a randomized one-to-one, double-blind, multi-center, non-inferiority design, and was designed under an FDA special protocol assessment, which is abbreviated SPA and makes this whole thing sound appropriately luxurious. It compared ceftabiprol, an advanced generation cephalosporin, to daptomycin with or without astreonam, which was left up to uh, the investigators should they desire gram-negative coverage for up to 42 days of treatment. It was dosed, interestingly, at 500 milligrams every six hours for days one through eight, and then transitioned to every eight-hour dosing on day nine and forward. This was compared to at least six mix per kg of daptomycin, and because this is the FDA-approved dose, the study could not mandate folks treating with anything higher than that, but facilities could go higher if they desired, if that was in line with their protocols, etc. The primary outcome here was clinical success at 70 days post-randomization, and success had to require survival, symptom improvement, clearance of bacteremia, no new bacteremia-related complications, and no use of other potentially effective antibiotics. This was then adjudicated by a blinded independent data review committee that consisted of six experienced ID specialists here in the States. They randomized 390 patients, and 387 were included in the primary analysis population. 
overall, the folks that were included were about 55 years old, predominantly white males, and the primary enrollment site was actually the Ukraine. Uh, Europe comprised about 90% of enrollment in both groups. About one-third of the patients in the daptomycin group received that concomitant s and the most common source of bacteremia was skin and skin structure infections. The title of the results slides was one of my favorite. It literally just read, Ceftabiprol met primary endpoint, and I feel like we could take a note from that and start designing our slides exceptionally clearly. Uh, the lower bound of the confidence interval was negative uh, 7.1%, which was well within their pre-specified non-inferiority margin of 15%. Uh, to, to summarize the dense amount of data, all secondary outcomes were similar, including microbiological eradication, which was actually numerically higher for septaviprol, all-cause mortality, new complications, et cetera. Uh, and this, interestingly, also did not change in any subgroup analyses when looking at things like persistent bacteremia, endocarditis, MRSA versus MSSA, et cetera. There was no relationship between success and MICs. And in terms of relapses, there were four relapses in the daptomycin group, two with MRSA and two with MSSA, and then two in the septibiprol group, both MSSA, just for your information. In the setting of vancomycin MICs uh, that were elevated, so anywhere between two and eight, uh, there was an 87.5% success rate in the septibiprol group versus a 50% success rate with DAPTO, which is where I started to get excited. Um, not started, I was excited before that, but I my excitement increased, intensified, if you will. Uh, overall, well-tolerated drug, most common adverse effect was mild to moderate nausea. Um, and so this could certainly become a treatment option for complicated staph aureus bacteremia. Uh, knowing our audience here at Breakpoints, I will note, I know it's important to you, my people, uh, the median daptomycin dosing was 6.5 mg per kg. They did analyze that separately to see if there was any difference in outcomes, and they did not see any, um, but just wanted to provide you with that information. So, my friends, what did I miss? What were you excited to take away from this presentation? That was an excellent summary, Jillian. Thank you. And I, I think, so... Uh, Ceftabiprol not currently approved in the United States. It first popped on the scene in the early 2000s and was actually not FDA approved when it was originally studied for the treatment of skin and skin structure infections. And now it is back. And so with these data, taking them for what they are and knowing we do not have access to Ceftabiprol, I guess my question for you, Jillian, or others is, does this change your mind about where you position Ceftaroline? Because I think we're all fans of beta-lactams on the pod fans of ceftaroline in general, but the pushback has always been, you know, there's no data for ceftaroline in staph aureus bacteremia other than observational studies. So would this change your mind? Or were you already routinely using ceftaroline for staph aureus bacteremia? So I'll yeah. be honest, ceftaroline is one of my favorite drugs. So I was already using it and I like having this to support, but I would be careful, I think, using this just to support the case for ceftaroline in and of itself. Um, ceftabiprols, anytime I bring it up, it, the ID physicians are like, that drug, that drug's been like in discussion and in development forever. So I think we're, these are promising. I'm definitely excited with this. I don't think anything here is necessarily uh, surprising. It would match what I would expect. Um, so yeah, I think they, they just kind of need to get this to market and then we'll talk numbers and, and see if we want to use this particular agent, but it doesn't necessarily change my practice for ceftaroline. Yeah, of course, it is a different drug, right? And so PKPD wise, you know, how do we dose ceftaroline? These are questions we would need to be answered. But I, I still think all in all, these are these are encouraging data. I, Jillian, I completely co-sign. I thought the 
um, I mean, it was like 16 patients, so let's be cautious, but the numbers on patients with elevated vancomycesis, I thought were very intriguing. And I think currently that's probably a place we're all looking to sefteroline more than DAPTO um, in those kinds of patients already. So all in all, very exciting data and kudos to the authors. Rachel, do you want to guide us through the next exciting late-breaking trial? I would love to. Thank you for asking. This next study is Inhale WP3, and this study was really interesting because they did a workflow switch that I personally haven't seen before, but it was a multi-center randomized control trial that aimed to test whether rapid diagnostics for the diagnosis of hospital-acquired or ventilator-associated pneumonia can improve microbial stewardship in the ICU, which is something that's very relevant to me and I'm sure many other places. So what they did is that they randomized patients with HAPRVAP in 14 different ICUs all across England to have their respiratory samples processed at the point of care in the unit by nurses on the film array torch pneumonia panel. Uh, and then the control group, those samples were sent to the microbiology lab for traditional processing and workup. But that was pretty cool because the film array panel has a 70-minute turnaround time, and it's pretty easy to operate. Um, they noted that the nurses loved operating it, and it wasn't difficult, and they liked having ownership of that diagnostic there. Uh, so results were available pretty quickly and were given to clinicians with an optional prescribing algorithm um, for the study. And that's also published in a protocol. They also looked at both a stewardship outcome and clinical outcome for their primary. So the first one was a non-inferiority outcome of clinical care at 14 days. And then the stewardship outcome was a superiority outcome of improvement in stewardship as 24 hours, which they defined as the percentage of patients on therapy active against the isolated pathogen and proportionate in spectrum. The classic example that they gave for what proportionate meant was, let's say you isolated a, a, a haemophilus influenzae in your cultures. If the patient was on miropenem, yes, that's active against the pathogen, but it's not proportionate because there are more neurospectrum options available. The other interesting thing is that, that the study time period spanned both COVID and post-COVID eras. So they had about a third of their patients with COVID-19, and they also included patients with quite a diverse representation of comorbidities. And about 17% of the study population were actually pediatric patients with a median age of two. So this can apply across um, all patient populations in hospitals. So for the results, they found that the point of care testing did result in better stewardship outcomes, uh, but unfortunately, it did fail to meet the non-inferiority margin for clinical cure. So they found uh, patients with better stewardship, active and proportionate therapy were 76.5% in the intervention group versus 55.9% in the control group. But for clinical cure, they actually noted 55.9% clinical care in the intervention group versus 64.7% in the control group. So this wasn't a significant difference, but uh, the lower end of the confidence interval was 15%, so it didn't meet their non-inferior margin of 13%. The investigators aren't really sure why this is. Uh, they've been doing a lot of exploratory analyses, though, to try to figure it out. What's interesting is that in all the clinical secondary outcomes, which some examples are length of stay, mortality, ventilator-free days, and change in SOFA score from baseline, those were all similar between groups. So they theorized that that didn't account for that difference in cure. Um, and when they broke it down into subsets of patients, they found that that main difference is there was most cure in the patients that had an identified pathogen from the culture and were receiving active and proportionate antimicrobials. So that also doesn't really help to explain the difference in cure there, but they're still working really hard to try to find some kind of biological explanation. 
Overall, though, they concluded that the point-of-care rapid diagnostics in the unit were really well-received by the providers, and they improved stewardship in the ICU at 24 and 72 hours. Yeah, these were, this was a bummer for stewardship, right? So, and I think that last point you made is so important when they looked into subgroups, which again, be careful, but they were trying to figure out what the heck with these results where you have, you know, like a 15% discord in the intervention arm doing worse, which is unexpected. Like no difference is one thing, but your intervention arm doing worse probably means something odd happened, or this is just some kind of anomaly. Um, But they found that in patients that a pathogen was identified and they had the optimal therapy ASAP, the control arm, meaning they didn't have rapid diagnostic testing, did 20% better than the intervention arm. And so that to me is just like something weird is going on. And I feel for this group that's, you know, trying to dig into this and figure out why these results could have been the way they were, but it's very odd that they got them on active therapy and optimal therapy faster and outcomes were the same, if not numerically worse. Um, so weird, weird situation all around. Um, but overall I thought it was really neat that they had like the way they tried to pilot this with having nurses do this at bedside is I think really novel. Okay. I'm so excited because now I get to talk about CMV. So the next trial that was presented, I like, I've like been excited about this all day. I'm not, not I know you have Erin. Go for it. I'm like, oh my God, tonight I get to go through the results of the term of your study. Okay. So then I wish, I wish that the listeners could watch you sometimes (laughs) during these episodes, because this happened also during our febrile episode and Erin physically starts to show signs of just joy and sheer enthusiasm yes uh and I I wish that that could be captured in a podcast Erin I'm sorry I'm delaying your your excitement you go girl take it away I'm so excited to talk about these data um like I am physically excited okay so then third trial in this session was the safety and efficacy of latermavir versus valgancyclovir for prevention of CMV disease and CMV high risk which would be donor positive recipient negative kidney transplants. So as many of us are aware, valgancyclovir 900 daily is the current FDA approved prevention strategy for solid organ transplant patients, all except livers. That's an odd caveat. Um, But for the most part, standard of care is if you get a solid organ transplant and you're recipient negative or recipient, recipient negative donor positive or R positive, you get valgancyclovir for X amount of time. Latermavir um, was approved originally for prevention in bone marrow transplant or stem cell transplant or whatever you call it. Um, Latermavir has a lot of advantages over valgancyclovir in that it's not renal dose adjusted and it doesn't cause myelosuppression or myelotoxicity. It also has no cross resistance with valgancyclovir or gancyclovir resistance. The negative side to latermavir is it doesn't have any HSV or VZV activity. So you do have to give it with acyclovir, but all in all, it seems like a pretty promising compound for CMV, but it was only approved in cell transplantation up to this point. So studying it in solid organ transplant was important. It was huge. And this trial has been going on for quite some time. And um, so what they did is they went into this trial hypothesizing that latermavir was going to be non-inferior for preventing CMV disease or CMV syndrome but that it would be significantly safer. 
The other thing and to point out, and as we know, as pharmacists, they're studying a kidney transplant population, which at baseline is inherently complex to take care of in about in the first couple of weeks after transplant, because you come out of transplant and you may have delayed graft function, or you just may have a significant change in creatinine over those first couple of weeks as you know the patient is adjusting to their new transplanted organ. And so renal function is so critically important and often it's not a very complex surgery. Once they leave, kidney transplants are often able to go home a couple of days post-op. And so monitoring them and dose adjusting meds is a huge resource burden for healthcare providers. And so in general, a medication that's not renal dose adjusted is a win here. And so this was really important to explore. So what they, what the primary efficacy endpoint was the proportion of participants who had adjudicated. So they did look at these cases and make sure they were legit CMV disease, again, either end organ or syndrome through 52 weeks. So they followed these patients for a whole year, which is why these results took a long time to come out. And then the safety endpoint was leukopenia, which they defined as a white blood cell count less than 3.5 or neutropenia, which they defined as an ANC less than a thousand. They had 601 patients in 16 countries, 94 sites, a very global effort here, really awesome work, one-to-one to Latermavir or Valgan, and it was placebo-controlled. So if you were in the Latermavir arm, you took Latermavir, active acyclovir, and then a placebo-Valgan cyclovir. If you were in the Valgan cyclovir arm, you took placebos for Latermavir and acyclovir. So a lot of pill burden to patients in these trials. And they stratified enrollment by the use of lymphocyte depleting inductions. That's really important too. 90% of the patients were able to complete the trial through a year, which is really incredible study retainment. And, but within that, a higher proportion of patients had to prematurely discontinue the study due to adverse events in the Valgan cycle of your arm. Baseline characteristics were really well balanced. About half received lymphocyte depleting induction. So that I think is common practice now. And so that's, that's relevant. Ultimately, primary efficacy endpoint CMV disease occurred in 10.4% of latermavir-treated patients versus 11.8% in valgancyclovir-treated patients, which was an absolute treatment difference of 1.4 in favor of latermavir, and this did meet their non-inferiority margin. When they looked at just investigator-reported CMV disease versus what they ultimately adjudicated, the rates were about 17% in each arm, so higher as we would anticipate, and still non-inferior because they were basically equal in that case. And the efficacy held for all subgroups, including those receiving lymphocyte-depleting induction. There were significantly more adverse events for patients treated with valgancyclovir. 37% developed leukopenia versus 11.3% in the latermavir arm. And then neutropenia was 16.5% versus 2.7%. And two times as many patients in the valgancyclovir arm ended up needing GCSF to treat this adverse event. So to me, honestly, these are no-brainer practice-changing data. I think we could try to pick this study apart, and I'm sure every journal club will in both transplant and infectious diseases spaces, but valgancyclovir isn't exactly affordable, and so latermavir is probably a little more costly when you look you know, milligram per milligram, but it's not like valgancyclovir is pennies, and patient assistance programs have gone away recently, and so this actually isn't a med that's like necessarily easy to access. It's hazardous, so you tie in all other logistical complications, whereas latermavir is not, and you eliminate the need for renal dose adjustment in the outpatient space, and you eliminate the need for extra drugs to treat adverse events. And so with outcomes like this and the efficacy standpoint where they're basically equal, when you go to, then you have to go to safety, and that's how we assess you know, whether things are worth it and whether we should position these therapies. I just, To me, these are absolutely practice-changing data. 
And I think one pushback might be, well, like it's a, maybe they weren't, maybe the valgancyclovir wasn't dose adjusted appropriately. And my only comment to that is if you can't get it right in an RCT, you most certainly are not getting it right in the real world. And so even if there were 20% of the patients that didn't have appropriate dose adjustment, I guarantee you that's worse IRL. So uh, I, this is like very exciting to me. And I think this should be on the radar of every transplant surgeon, nephrologist and infectious diseases specialist. I totally agree with you. I'm not even a CMB girl, and I was pretty psyched by these data. Um, I actually wish this was uh, out even earlier so we could have talked about it in a couple of other sessions as well. So um, I actually share your uh, excitement about this one. Christmas for everybody. Mm -hmm. except, those, except our friends who do not observe Christmas, at which point it is a holiday gift to you and yours. Yes. Spread good cheer. Yes, it is. It's just, it's very, very, very exciting for our patients, quite frankly. Um, yeah. It's it's just, and that's the, like the most important thing to keep in mind. This is a simpler regimen. You don't have to keep changing their dose. They have less toxicities. It's great. Those toxicity numbers are serious. I mean, that that's a big difference. Yeah. And I think those of us who care for this patient population, that tracks, right? It's not like you're mm -hmm. seeing numbers in a clinical trial that are crazy. And you're like, that's not my practice. That is my practice. That absolutely tracks that one in five, you know, half of my patients are going to get leukopenia or neutropenia. Um, and so that's something we see, something we're seeing in the RCTs. And so all around, just very exciting. The next trial was interesting. So this was um, presented by Sujata um, Bhavmani, who is a pharmacist, and she's absolutely awesome, works up with the ICPD folks in New York. And she presented the POP-PK and then the PKPD target attainment work for Solbactam, Dolorobactam, which is essentially they compiled all of the pharmacokinetic and did some pharmacodynamic modeling data out of six phase one, one phase two, and other phase three studies for Solbactam, Dolorobactam. And we have covered on this podcast in previous episodes um, the outcomes of the Soldar study in which it was found superior to Colistin for the treatment of Acinetobacter. So a really exciting drug that's on the horizon. And essentially what these group presented is compiling all the aggregate PK data from all of these studies to really boil down to, you know, what's going to be an acceptable breakpoint for when this agent does ultimately come to market. And to get to the punchline right up front, they propose a susceptibility breakpoint of four. When they looked at exposures throughout all of the trials um, and then looked at um, outcomes, there really wasn't any um, relationship between exposure and outcome based on MIC. But the reason for that is because when you actually plotted patients' exposures versus the time kill curves in preclinical models, patients are consistently achieving excellent exposures at the dose that this drug is given at, which is a gram of Solbactam, a gram of Dolorobactam IV every six hours. So we're doing dose optimization of beta-lactams, which is a fan of everything uh, we're all a fan of. And when you do that and patients are all achieving really excellent exposures at the top of these preclinical model curves, then you're not going to see an MIC relationship because everyone's achieving the appropriate time above MIC for Solbactam and then Dolorobactam, like some of our other novel beta-lactamase inhibitors, its PKPD index is actually AUC to MIC. So you pair these two drugs together and, and the way we're dosing it in clinical trials is achieving good outcomes as long as you're within an acceptable MIC range. And so just a neat compilation of data. And I liked that when they were presenting this, they compared it to tigacycline and they said, essentially, you know, look at this curve, look at the exposures. All these patients are at the top half of this, and that's why they're doing great. 
as opposed to when they modeled tigacycline in the HAP-BAP trial, tigacycline failed. And in that trial, all the patients had exposures and box plots at the lower end of that curve. And so they had bad outcomes because they weren't achieving their targets. And so PKPD continues to prove important um, in clinical outcomes. And it's looking like four is the breakpoint that they're going to put forward for Solbactam, Dolorobactam. Yeah, the only thing I will, the only thing that I will add here is um, I'm always amazed at how much work they're able to fit in and summarize in like 10 or 12 minutes. This is an, uh, an incredible amount of drug development that has gone into the dosing regimen. And I'm actually really excited that a it's proof of concept for PKPD. Like if you actually do this work up front, then the drug hopefully will have very good clinical outcomes on, on the back end. No, I agree, Julie. And honestly, good on intake. The, the company that's putting Solbactam, Dolorobactam to market because they they worked with pharmacists and physicians who do these kind of modeling from the very beginning and have incorporated this throughout phase one, two, three. So they have a POP PK model of over 5,000 plasma concentrations from 211 unique patients that they pulled from all three sets of studies. And then the clinical PKPD, where I talked about that exposure relation to the MIC relationship, they pulled that from the phase three study. They were able to look at dialysis patients, ELF concentrations to look at lung penetration. And could we use this for pneumonia kind of things, which of course patients with pneumonia were included in the phase three trial. And so it's just, it is, it's an incredible amount of work. It's really well done. I would encourage you all of our listeners to watch watch this session for sure to be able to look. Some of these things are hard to explain on a podcast, especially in the PKPD space. I think seeing these graphs and seeing the visual representation of these models is is really really cool and and really important. So awesome job there. And Julie, I think that we come to you then for our last two trials, both of which are in the HIV AIDS space. Both very exciting. So do you want to close us out here with talking about um, your last two trials? Yeah, I'm super. I'm super stoked to talk about these trials in, in HIV/AIDS. The the first one is looking at single dose liposomal amphotericin B um, in the treatment of disseminated histoplasmosis. So we know histo is definitely a killer. So this particular trial was done in six different centers in Brazil. Um, hat off to this group because this is a, a difficult trial to do. Um, so normally we would do liposomal amphotericin for four to six weeks for treatment of disseminated histo, um, and that wreaks havoc on a lot of different things logistically and just patient quality of life and so on. And there's been interest in looking at single dose liposomal AMFO. Um, we've already seen success in things like leishmaniasis and uh, cryptococcus. So if you're looking at the ambition trial, that's definitely gotten a lot of buzz um, in the last couple of uh, months to years. So this trial was looking at histo. It was a prospective randomized phase two multi-center open label trial. And uh, in fact, the phase two trial that's based on this is, in, is enrolling right now. So this phase uh, two trial included 118 patients randomized uh, pretty evenly to one of three arms. Uh, the treatment arm they wanted to evaluate was a single dose of 10 milligram per kilo, so high dose liposomal uh, amphotericin B um, as a single dose on day one. The second regimen that they looked at was that same high dose 10 milligram per kilo on day one, followed by a five milligram per kilo IV dose on day three. So let's see if a little bit more is better. Um, and then comparing that to the standard three milligram per kilo um, IV once a day for two weeks. Um, of note, all patients got itraconazole capsules, 400 milligrams a day. Um, and I see, I know we all have feelings about itraconazole capsules, so we'll hold our uh, peanut gallery comments, but everybody got itraconazole capsules I for- I can't, I can't hold my 
peanut gallery. Peanut. I knew you. Gallery. Okay, go for Comment. it. Go for it. We I know. I'm sorry. We... I can't. I can't do it. Um, itcher capsules. I accept. When I watched this and heard the authors explain, they're like, "We use itcher capsules here. It's all we have." I, I felt for that. I felt for that genuine soul talking about this. So, but as a reminder, if you have access to the solution, you should use the solution. But if you only have capsules, then of course, treat your patient. Okay, continue. <laughs> Um, and as far as I could tell, I, this most likely was the Spornox formulation, um, not the newer Tulsora formulation that is available in, in other parts of the world. So just, it's a detail, it's there, we're acknowledging it, limitations thereof, and we're going to keep moving forward. Um, in terms of who they included um, in this study, an important exclusion criterion is that they excluded any patients that had CNS involvement. Okay, there's some others too. If they had TB and rifampin was going to be in the mix with itraconazole, that's a disaster. So they excluded those patients. Um, if they were pregnant or if they were expected um, to um, experience death within 48 hours of randomization, et cetera. So reasonable exclusion criteria, but the CNS involvement is an important exclusion for these data. The primary endpoint was clinical response um, on day 14, which they defined as resolution of fever um, and signs and symptoms attributable to histo. They excluded resolution of skin lesions, hepatosplenomegaly, or pancytopenia, since we as clinicians know that those can take longer than two weeks to resolve. Secondary endpoints, they also looked at um, day 14 mortality, and they also looked at something we're all very interested in, renal function abnormalities defined by um, the three stages of the KDGO guidelines. So they needed 99 patients uh, to achieve their um, power for this particular evaluation, and they included 118 patients across six centers in Brazil. If we look at the patients included in the study, most of them were young men at a median age of 38 years of age. And unfortunately, when you look at the baseline characteristics, these represent severe AIDS patients. So unfortunately, these patients, histoplasmosis was their first presenting AIDS disease in over half in 51% of the patients, which again, just harks back to uh, kind of the next trial that we're going to talk about in terms of getting patients tested and linked into care is really, really important. And we got some work to do there. Median CD4 cell count in this patient population was 25, and they all had very high viral loads. Um, so again, advanced AIDS is who we're looking at for this trial. In terms of results for the primary endpoint, clinical response was overall similar across these three arms. Uh, it was numerically higher, in fact, with this new single-dose regimen that they were evaluating. So clinical response was found in 82% for that single-dose uh, lamb at 10 milligram per kilos on day one compared to 68% with the day one and day three dosing and 72% clinical response in the standard three milligram per kilo arm for two weeks. Then very interestingly, when you looked at the secondary outcome, if you look at AKI or, or acute kidney injury by day seven, it was lower in this single dose arm. So 14%, about half of what it was in the other two regimens, which were AKI rates of 32 to 35% with the 10 milligram per kilo on day one and day three, um, or the standard three milligram per kilo daily. And that was actually kind of surprising to me. I would have expected the second regimen to do a little bit better, but it had actually a you know, a third of patients had AKI in that arm. Then when you look at overall survival on day seven and day 14, um, it was relatively similar across all three groups around 76 to 89%. And that um, the effect across the three regimens was sustained out to a year. So overall, the conclusions from this trial looked actually pretty promising. That single high dose 
Liposomal amphotericin B uh, appeared safe and efficacious as induction therapy for disseminated histoplasmosis in patients living with HIV AIDS. Um, I did find it interesting that there was unfortunately no advantage to the second high dose on day three. That's the second regimen that they looked at. Um, and the safety benefits that you saw with the first single dose regimen appeared to be lost if you gave that second dose on day three. So um, a couple of other uh, key points that came during the Q&A of this session. ART was started as soon as possible uh, per standard care. That question came up in the audience. Um, and no patients uh, were included in the study with ARDS or requiring ventilation. So I'm looking at this, and I think we're probably going to see more and more of this single uh, high-dose liposomal amphotericin B be applied across a variety of opportunistic infections, and I'm I'm here for it. I mean, so much of my day job is managing and getting patients through uh, to 14 days or longer of liposomal amphotericin, and it's a struggle. Uh, so if if we can do these well-designed trials and, and find similar outcomes with a better quality of life and care for our patients, I, I think it's it's the right approach. Yeah, I think this is awesome. And I think we'll hear later in the podcast about a similar trial in an antifungal space using single high-dose liposomal amphotericin. So perhaps this is a trend, um, but it's so important for patient access. So overall, I think these data are really exciting. All right. Um, and the next uh, trial that I'm going to go over in the HIV space was the INSIGHT START trial. And some of you are probably familiar with this, the START trial was published back in New England Journal of Medicine in 2015 and really changed the game um, in terms of how we approach HIV. Uh, we, at this point, standard of care, we agree that if a patient is HIV positive, we're going to start antiretroviral therapy as soon as possible once we kind of coordinate their access to care and counsel the patient and allow them to pick their regimen and they're comfortable with it, we're going to move forward. There's no more of this, okay, we're going to wait for this situation and your CD4 cell count to get uh, low enough for us to start. Um, unfortunately, when you look at the epi of HIV management worldwide, um, the presenters for this uh, study were mentioning that a majority of patients, over 50% of those in Europe, are diagnosed with HIV still relatively late in the disease course as defined by presenting with a very low CD4 cell count. And we still have this question, what does the impact of a nadir CD4 during the course of uh, HIV disease progression how does that impact their subsequent prognosis once you start them on antiretroviral anti therapy? And so to start investigators to their credit, they figured we got the perfect study uh, to analyze that. Um, if you remember, um, this study was originally over 4,600 patients um, who are HIV positive. Um, and the initial design of the study was to randomize patients to either immediate antiretroviral therapy, regardless of their baseline CD4 cell count, or to randomize them to the deferred antiretroviral therapy group where they would wait to start antiretroviral therapy until their CD4 cell count dropped below 350 cells um, or unless they had an um, AIDS-defining illness that, that presented. The primary composite endpoint for that original design of the trial was either serious AIDS defined as um, AIDS-related illness or death, serious non AIDS event, such as cardiovascular disease or end-stage renal disease and the like, or death that's otherwise not attributable to AIDS. So all bad things. The interim results for that study, which were published in 2015, demonstrated that immediate antiretroviral therapy reduced uh, the primary endpoint event rate by 57%. And as we know, that changed the game. Now, if you're HIV positive and you can and are willing to take ART, we will prescribe it for you. Now, here's the part that they presented 
at ID Week 2022. They actually extended this study through six-year follow-up, which ended in December of 2021. January 1st of 2016, everybody in the study, based on the interim analysis um, and the Data Safety Monitoring Board conclusions, everybody in the trial, including those in the original deferred group, were offered ART to start by January 1, 2016. So now we're going to continue to follow everybody, the immediate group and the deferred group, and see how their hazard ratios for this primary composite changed over time, over many years. Hopefully to answer the question, um, is the Nader CD4 cell count leading up to the time that you start ART, what matters? Or is it just overall, if you get your viral load down at any point in time, then you're getting the benefits um, and your risk of, quote, badness with HIV AIDS uh, will, will go away. So looking at these uh, hazard ratios, again, we started off with over 4,600 patients in the trial. Um, about a third of them were female. Median age uh, was actually very similar to the last trial we talked about, 30 years of age. And median CD4 cell count uh, was about 651. So we know the results of that trial. Um, and then if we're going to the post-2016 analysis cohort, um, they retained an incredibly large number of patients. So it's pretty impressive. Some of these patients were in this study, it sounded like for, you know, 12, 15 years. They retained 4,436 patients in this um, additional analysis post-2016. And so when you look at the results uh, from this trial, Pre-2016, the hazard ratio from the original, when we randomized and looked at the primary composite endpoint, uh, hazard ratio in the immediate arm was 0.41. And that progressed, if you looked in those same two groups in the post-2016 interval, to a hazard ratio of 0.79, uh, which uh, was not statistically significant, but numerically still demonstrated that there's some excess risk that's happening in the post-2016 group. Um, again, all everybody in that group is on antiretroviral therapy at that point. So being deferred, you still have some ex excess risk for an event occurring. They did test uh, for an interaction comparing the hazard ratios in the post uh, versus the pre-group, and that was uh, statistically significant. And the real kicker of this, that kind of, uh, you heard like the gasps in the room, was when they looked at the subgroup analyses. And we know we all got to take subgroup analyses with a grain of salt, but it's actually, if you look at the magnitude, it's pretty impressive. The remaining excess risk in the post-2016 hazard ratio was primarily driven by patients that were um, 35 years of age or less. And the Authors, when they were presenting it, were explaining this wasn't, there's nothing magic about 35 years of age. It was actually more of a spectrum, but it was definitely clear from the data that they had, the excess risk in the deferred group still having a higher event rate was driven primarily by those that were younger. We don't quite understand the reason for this. There's still, is probably going to spark a lot of research moving forward, and it's definitely got me thinking, um, but the findings thus far are consistent with the fact that the the CD4 Nader hypothesis that how low you go before you start really has implications for your prognosis overall was really supported uh, by this particular trial, as opposed to the HIV RNA hypothesis, which is as long as you get undetectable, you've got the majority of the benefit from ART. So this reinforces the need for early diagnosis um, and early treatment of HIV. It kind of re-energizes me to really kind of focus um, and find these patients and get them on therapy as fast as possible because time does seem to be a factor. So what do you guys think? What other thoughts do you have from this particular trial? 
I graduated pharmacy school in 2015 and I remember being on eight PPE rotations and well, and learning in my first, second, and third years about just the extensive conversations that went into starting ART considerations, delaying if they had OIs, all these things. And then 2015, I graduated and all of a sudden in residency, it's like everyone gets on ART, ASAP, everything has changed. And I remember being a part of that paradigm shift with these data. And I think it's just one it's an incredible data set and it's such a rich data set to follow those patients for so long. So I think it's just, it's really amazing that we're able to, you know, continue to follow these patients and that we have these to make informed decisions. Absolutely. Erin is someone else who kind of was a couple years behind you, but not, not too long, like watching this space change from when, you know, we first learned about it in school to then treating these patients. Um, this, this presentation in particular just made me have a lot of gratitude for all the work that goes into these incredible studies. Um, especially this one, they were, you know, just talking about like the, the number of patients that they followed for so many years, um, just makes me super, super grateful. And we see how much it's, it's impactful for, for patients. So Julie, to your question, I, I agree. I think it motivates me to try and screen as many people and pair that diagnosis with quick um, connection with care because it's just so critical for outcomes for these folks. Yeah. And it being World AIDS Day today, I think it's a wonderful time to discuss and acknowledge these studies. And there are very few things we get to experience in our life that truly just change the world, right? And ART is one of them. Hep C therapy is one of them. COVID vaccines are one of them. So just really, really awesome stuff. Okay, let's move into the pipeline session now. That rounded out our late-breaking clinical trials. Excellent discussion, guys. Really cool content. Now we're going to learn about six antibacterial agents in the pipeline. And I love that our first, Rachel is going to start us off with two new agents in the C. difficile space. And what a time to talk about it because yesterday we got an FDA approval for a third agent by our friends at Faring Pharmaceuticals for the first microbiome product in C. diff. And so this also feels quite timely to have this discussion. So Rachel, do you want to tell us about the two C. diff products? Definitely. And I'm so glad that I get to talk about these two because I feel like I posted every CDF episode on breakpoints except for the first one. Definitely did. And that's definitely why I assigned you these two. I was like, oh, this is Rachel's thing. Yeah. It's also a great area to plug our other episodes. This first product I'm going to talk about is SCR 109, which is one of the new live biotherapeutic products or LBPs. And we had a whole episode dedicated to those a few months ago, I think back in July. So go ahead and check that out. We had some really great guests, including one of the authors on the NEJM paper for SCR 109. There's also a seed of treatment episode back in February 2021 that hits all the highlights of that newest guideline update. So this first product is termed SCR 109, and this is a donor-derived consortium of firm acute spores. And yes, for the next seed of episode, we're going to have an I Feel Nerdy segment about the correct pronunciation of firm acutes. Is it firm acutes, firm acutes, firm acutes? Uh, but Kevin Gary says Firmacutes, so that's what I'm going to go with. But this was developed to reduce the risk of recurrent C. diff infection, and they talked a little bit about why they specifically chose Firmacutes, and that's because the specific phylum of bacteria have a key role in preventing C. diff spore germination and growth. And also, they've been observed to germinate and replicate in the jet tract pretty readily, so that results in a low pill burden for the product. Also, this product has undergone standard manufacturing processes that inactivate harmful pathogens that could be isolated in fecal microbiota transplant products, despite advanced donor screening. So this product could be safer and help mitigate that risk to patients. 
In this presentation, they focused on two main studies and they kind of go hand in hand. They're two phase three studies, Ecospore three and four, nice little rhyme there. And they were double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trials in patients with at least two episodes of toxin-positive C. diff infection in the past 12 months. The patients were randomized to receive four capsules for three days or placebo. And they looked at C. diff infection recurrence at eight weeks, time to recurrence, and then recurrence and safety at 24 weeks. They found that SCR109 is superior to placebo at reducing recurrence, and this was in association with functional and structural changes in the microbiome. So they had a relative risk reduction of 68% and a number needed to treat of 3.7, which is very low. They also found that the dose was rapidly engrafted um, by the end of week one, and this was associated with increased concentrations of secondary bile acids as well in the colon, which they've been finding in C. diff that the presence of secondary bile acids are helpful in preventing C. diff infection because they inhibit the life cycle of C. diff. And a lot of the other C. diff active therapies that we currently have, like oral vancomycin, prevent that transition of primary to secondary bile acids. So you see more primary bile acids in the colon, and that leads to higher C. diff incidence and higher recurrence. So they actually saw increased secondary bile acids with this product, which was encouraging. Also, they saw that the benefit of SCR109 persisted through 24 weeks of follow-up. So it happened early and it stayed for a long time. And it was also very well tolerated in a pretty sick population. The Charleston comorbidity scores were greater than four in both the placebo and the treatment group. In Ecospore 4, this was an open-label single-arm study mainly done to fulfill the FDA to enough safety data on for their orphan designation. So they needed a minimum of 300 patients. And the only thing that was different was that it expanded the population to those with a first recurrence of C. diff or a PCR-based diagnosis rather than toxin-based. Uh, but they also saw that SCR109 was well-tolerated through 24 weeks, and the most common side effects were mainly gastrointestinal. Something that I thought was interesting from this presentation is they discussed antibiotic resistance genes, or ARGs, and how different phyla have different inherent risks of carrying ARGs, which makes sense. Enterobacteriaceae are more positively associated with them because those are things like E. coli and Klebs, so more likely to have ARGs, but firmicutes are negatively associated with ARGs. So... They saw in their study that SCR109 engraftment leads to remodeling of microbial communities with a reduction in ARG carriage. This is post-hoc data, so we can't read too much, but this is a cool side note and something that they were really excited about. Something they're thinking about looking into in the future is could these products be used to reduce the risk of drug-resistant infections, which I thought was pretty cool. I think mm -hmm. the microbiome pearls at the end of these novel C. diff agents are always just so fascinating. It's like, data, data, this is great, this is cool. And then they like the last two slides blow your mind every time. I know every time Kevin Gary presents, that's how I feel, which I think he actually presented the next drug you're going to talk about. So I'm sure we're about to learn even more cool things about the microbiome. Oh, yes. Ibezapolstat. I'm going to fondly term this Ibeza for ease of pronunciation here. And this was the first time I was actually, I actually had heard of this product. So it's different from SCR109 in that it is a C. diff episode treatment product, not prevention for recurrence. And it has a novel mechanism of action than the current products that we have 
vancomycin, and fidaxomycin. It's a small molecule guanosine analog that competitively inhibits the DNA pole-3C enzyme. And this enzyme is essential for the replication of low G plus C content gram-positive bacteria, which are mainly present in the Firmicutes phyla, which is where CDI is housed in the classification system. Ibeza has a very specific spectrum of activity and, and it's very narrow particularly compared to our current CDI agents. Uh, so it has less activity on things that kill the microbiome and could potentially reduce recurrence because of that. So they did a phase one healthy volunteer study where they looked at two different doses of Ibeza versus SIBO, but they also added a group that received standard dose pelincomycin in there. And this was pretty unique because it allowed them to compare the microbiome changes in healthy volunteers uh, and they did this because vancomycin is very disruptive to the microbiome and thought to be the reason for the high recurrence rate. So including it there allowed them to observe microbiome changes in, even in the healthy volunteer stage. They also looked at the pharmacokinetics of the drug, which they found it was consistent with what you would want with a C. diff drug. It had a high fecal concentration with low systemic concentration, so not well absorbed. And it was also very safe and, again, has that more narrow spectrum versus vancomycin. Something, another highlight that he threw out, again, hitting it back to those bioacids, they found a beneficial effect. Ibezapolstat doesn't inhibit the conversion of primary to secondary bioacids like vancomycin does. So this was the first time, even in a healthy volunteer study, that they could predict an anti-recurrence effect of this compound. So that was pretty cool, and Kevin was pretty hyped about it, which made me get hyped about it too. Yeah, you can't see Kevin Gary talk without learning random facts about the microbiome you never knew. I know. Every time. It's very impressive. I'm putting bile acids in my next I feel nerdy. Maybe not this one, but I got to find a new one because that was very cool. Yeah, it seems secondary bile acids. Do you want as many of those in your colon as possible? Mm -hmm. I'm glad you guys are saying this too, because I thought that maybe I was behind and just like got left out of that fun fact. But I, my brain, I mean, I was like, what the heck? Bile acids? I didn't know this. And I'm furiously scribbling notes. Yeah. Team secondary bile acids for sure. It's just mm -hmm. fascinating. Wait until I tell you later that COVID is linked to your cortisol levels. It's just going to blow your mind. The human body is crazy. Um, Julie, you're up next, I think, with another completely novel first-in-class agent pivoting completely out of C. diff into urinary tract infections. But why don't you tell us all about your new drug? Yes, here we go. So this one was uh, Jebotitisin which is a novel first-in-class trazacinaphthalene, say that five times fast, uh, and it's being... I'm so impressed that you just completely nailed jefocytosin and whatever that word you said second, and like, I could never have done that. I may or may not have practiced. That's why I gave you this as drug, because I don't know. How <laughs> well, okay. I'll say I'll say the class and jepo for short. I, I like Rachel's abbreviations. Everybody knows what we're talking about here, right? So... Jepo is this novel first in class. Think about it as like a fluoroquinolone, but different. So stay with me for a second. They're developing it for treatment of uncomplicated urinary tract infections, as well as gonorrhea. We're not really going to focus on gonorrhea. They didn't focus on that in this particular um, presentation. But if you look at the spectrum of activity of Jepo, it does seem to have activity against a wide variety of gram negatives and Neisseria gonorrhea, including multidrug resistant isolates of each. So you can see why they're interested in these two indications. So here they uh, primarily discussed the uncomplicated UTI, uncomplicated UTI data. This compound 
was discovered by GSK and developed in partnership with DTRA and BARDA as well. Um, so it's nice to see that these partnerships are getting uh, drugs further along in the pipeline. They've completed three phase two trials to date, and they have an ongoing phase three program with the oral formulation. And they really just wanted to introduce this product, its mechanism of action, and the trial for uh, the phase three program with uncomplicated UTIs. So mechanism of action, y'all will definitely get some material for your next I feel nerdy. JEPO interrupts bacterial DNA replication by inhibiting DNA gyrase and topoisomerase 4. So two familiar targets that you'll recognize from fluoroquinolone's mechanism of action. However, Jepotitacin's chemical structure is completely distinct from fluoroquinolones. It binds to a totally different location um, and it inhibits an earlier step of the enzyme function and it has equipotent binding against both DNA gyrase and topoisomerase 4. So in theory, the organism, if it were to acquire drug resistance to JEPO, it would have to acquire resistance to both DNA gyrase and topoisomerase 4 together. In addition, some more fun facts about its mechanism, JEPO will result in more single-stranded DNA breaks, whereas fluoroquinolones result in double-stranded DNA breaks. So lots of good pharmacology in there for uh, us to nerd out on. And then kind of switching to the phase two trial design, they presented some of the PKPD data that would get us up to their current dosing regimen that they're investigating for UTIs, which is JEPO 1,500 milligrams by mouth twice a day, for five days. That looks very similar to the frequency and duration of what we use for nitrofurantoin, um, which is often standard to care for this indication. They went through some of the basic in vitro data. It looks really good against E. coli isolates. MIC-90s against JEPO were um, anywhere from two to four, um, and that included those isolates uh, of gram-negatives that were resistant to other UTI agents like trim sulfa, like fluoroquinolones, and so on. The dosing was based on an immunocompetent uh, rat pyelonephritis model and looked pretty good. The PKPD target for one log kill for those of us that are nerdy in the math, uh, free 24-hour uh, AUC to MIC target needed to be around 41. And then they also uh, presented some prelim data about um, that slightly higher target exposure that you would need to prevent emergence of resistance. They also presented a phase 2A trial um, where they looked at the peak urinary JEPO uh, concentrations, which seemed to peak around anywhere from 500 to 900. And I don't know about y'all, but when I see numbers that high, I get excited because I'm like, oh, this looks this looks good. Solid urinary concentrations. 24-hour uh, AUC of about 4,500 uh, microgram hour per ml. And when they do the math, the urinary exposures of the 24-hour AUC uh, exceeded their in vitro killing target by 27-fold, and they exceeded their resistance suppression PKPD targets by at least fourfold for all isolates up to an MIC of four. So all of that uh, sounds really good when it comes to hitting your target exposures for an indication like this. So lastly, they introduced the phase three trials, which are dubbed Eagle 2 and Eagle 3 in UTIs. Their Eagle 1 is in gonorrhea. Um, they're looking at female patients age 12 and older with clini clinically suspected uncomplicated UTIs. And their goal is to randomize 2,500 patients for a goal of a little over 760 in the primary efficacy analysis. And they're randomizing them to either JEPO 1500 uh, twice a day for five days by mouth or nitrofurantoin 100 milligrams uh, by mouth twice a day for five days. Their primary efficacy composite will be therapeutic response at test of cure around days 10 to 13. And then their secondary outcomes will be safety and other things that, as you would expect. It is a non-inferiority trial design um, with a 10% margin. 
And as of right now on clinicaltrials.gov, it says it's active, uh, but not recruiting. So we'll see kind of where this agent goes. I don't know. What did you guys think? Were you excited about having another uh, uncomplicated UTI agent on the market? Maybe. I'm getting scrunched eyebrows. Yeah, I wasn't excited particularly, but may, I know maybe in the future it could have a role for something else that could get me more excited. Yeah, I think it's probably more exciting as a, an agent against NBA gonorrhea, but um, we'll see. We'll see where this goes. I think we do need more oral ESBL options. So if this is going to work against fluoroquinolone resistant isolates, um, and especially in some of the bugs where nitrofurantoin isn't either is intrinsically inactive or tends to be more resistant, um, I think that's good, right? That's a need over putting someone on ertapenem, especially since tebipenem is not going to be coming to market anytime soon. So Agreed, yeah. Um, so I do think oral agents for ESBL is an important community need so that we don't have to admit these patients or set them up with home health. All right, Jillian, other things that possibly could be managed outpatient, big role for pharmacy potentially, is new drugs in the NTM space, which is really, really exciting. So um, Julie mentioned gonorrhea is something that we have a sore need for other agents for, and I would say NTM is another. So why don't you talk to us about your drug? I also like how I've possessively made these hours. <laughs> I didn't even realize I was doing that, but I do feel like you guys are like intimately bonded to these pipeline agents as assigned. Sure. That's fine. Epetroboral can be my my child, I'll take credit for absolutely no work on this wonderful agent. Um, so Ephedroboral, uh, AN2 Therapeutics is a, a biopharmaceutical company that actually uses a boron chemistry platform. We don't have time to talk about that, but it is super interesting. Uh, so Ephedroboral specifically is a late stage compound being developed for non-tuberculosis mycobacterium, specifically MAC, especially treatment refractory MAC, which is great uh, because as Aaron alluded to, uh, you know, we know regimens are so often scientifically speaking, a hot state and mess in this population. So uh, this compound has a novel mechanism of action where an enzyme involved in protein synthesis called leucyl tRNA synthetase is actually locked together to the terminal adenosine ribose of tRNA, sure, in the editing site. Basically, this is like a little pair of handcuffs. It goes on these molecules. When they're locked together, protein synthesis cannot proceed. Anyone at AN2 Therapeutics, I'm sorry if I oversimplified that. This is what I have to do to understand things. Uh, so in terms of in vitro activity, it has MICs demonstrated between 0.25 and 8. Uh, it has also excitingly demonstrated activity against clarithromycin and amikacin-resistant isolates that was not presented in this section In this session specifically. However, um, those results were available on poster 1712. So while you're in your platform digging up all these awesome sessions, you can peruse that as well. Uh, so in chronic mouse models of MAC lung disease, uh, all doses studied actually exhibited improved bacterial killing when compared to clarithromycin uh, and also exhibited significant reductions in MAC uh, CFU with monotherapy, uh, but superior decreases were shown when it was combined with what they called a standard of care regimen, which included clarithromycin, ethambutol, and rifibutin. Uh, so looking at their phase one data, this drug does appear generally well tolerated. Most common adverse effect was mild nausea. Uh, and then through a combination of population PK modeling, Monte Carlo simulations, phase one data, and those aforementioned mouse models, uh, the dose that they arrived at was 500 milligrams once daily. So an oral drug once a day for this indication, yes and amen, I'm loving all of that. Uh, also, they looked in their phase one study at uh, intrapulmonary exposure, and there's about a five-time increase in exposure in those lung macrophages when compared to 
to plasma. Uh, so this agent is currently in phase two studies looking again at that treatment refractory MAC disease of the lung, uh, and they will be evaluating clinical outcomes both through a lens of a, no a novel patient reported outcome. Uh, and this is being developed in conjunction with the FDA, who recently actually released guidance on uh, industry standard for developing these drugs, as well as the microbiological outcomes that we may be more familiar with when looking at studies in this space. Uh, so I certainly don't think any of us will be upset at the idea, again, of of a once daily oral drug for this indication. Uh, so we will we'll keep our fingers crossed for sure for continued positive results. Yeah, that would be a game changer too. Really, really exciting. I will close us out with the last two agents talked about in this pipeline session. So the first one is cefepime tanaborbactam, which was developed by Venatatorex. This molecule has been around for about 10 years and they um, have completed phase one studies and now moving into their registry studies. And so this also, Jillian, is a boron, boronate complex. So that is the element of the day. Um, it's a bicyclic boronate beta-lactamase inhibitor. And so what does that mean? It means it inhibits serine and metallobetalactamases. So this is quite exciting. There are some other BLIs in development that also inhibit metallobetalactamases, but we currently do not have a BLI available to us that inhibits metallobetalactamases. We have to use combinations or cefiterocol, of course, is, um, inhibits metallos or stable to hydrolysis by metallos is a better way to put that. And so this would be very exciting. In their global surveillance data, it looks great as these mo molecules typically do. Importantly, active in vitro against CRE and carbapetum-resistant pseudomonas that ceftoltezo, ceftazavi, and mirovabor are not active against. They didn't show imirel data, but I imagine it's in the same boat. And so this does enhance potency in that regard. Dose is two grams of cefepime, 0.5 grams of tanaborbactam. So two and every eight hours. So two QA to cefepime, pair it with a BLI, restore that cefepime activity and go to town. Um, it resulted that dosing strategy in preclinical models resulted in two log kill, which is more than needed for a typical breakpoint, which is set at one log kill. So from a PKPD standpoint, without getting really nitty gritty into all of that math, this looks really good. Of course, we know the issues with cefepime, um, but from at least from the BLI standpoint, we're getting great exposures. In the phase one studies, they found that these molecules are really nicely paired. So they're both renally cleared. They have linear, linear and proportional PK, well-matched PK, no drug interactions as is typical of beta-lactams. And then interestingly, it's 100% unbound. So no protein binding, which is really helpful in critically ill patients. This plagues other beta-lactams, particularly ertapenem, ceftriaxone, where we're having to account for our patients with hypoalbuminemia. So that, that stood out to me of everything else, which is like how I know I'm a pharmacist at the end of the day. When me I too. <laughs> I, thought, I saw that and I was like, oh, thank God. It's so simple. I, it's like, I watch things sometimes and I'm like, I went into the right profession. Cause like other people I'm sure are drawn to other parts of the session. And I'm like a hundred percent unbound, like nice. Cause for critically ill patients, that's very valuable. I feel much more comfy that I'm getting good exposures with package insert dosing. So what are we looking at? We're looking at certain one, certainly exciting. A CUTI registration trial, I gave you the dose already. This is infused over two hours, as we're seeing with all beta-lactams, you know, two to three hour infusions in their clinical trials in the package insert. You'll love to see it. And in this trial, long story short, it was superior to miropenem for the treatment of CUTI. Hooray, very minimal adverse events as is typical of beta-lactams. So they're going to pursue NDA submission quarter one, 2023, and we'll look out for that. They're also going to start a HAP-VAP trial. So exciting stuff, especially for our metallo-beta-lactamases, which 
are increasing in the United States. I think this is something, you know, five, 10 years ago, we were like, I've never seen a metallo in my life. And I would, I would gather to say all of us have seen at least one patient with a metallo and, and you know, that's only increasing. So this is important. This is a need. And then last, but very not least is a very cool novel immunotherapy to treat gram negative infections developed by Centauri Therapeutics called ABX01. So it is still in the molecule number and letter phase, but very, very excited. So this is preclinical and um, the presenters of this compound spent a lot of time understanding the mechanism, which is of course valuable since it is so unique. It's reminiscent a bit of some of the data we talked about in early ECMID episodes from a couple of years ago about using these immunotherapies as adjunct agents in Staph aureus bacteremia. So it's not a space we're unfamiliar with, but the first time I'm seeing it in the gram negative, which is fascinating. So basically, what's the deal? Evidently, I learned this, we all have anti-glycan antibodies that are circulating around all the time. They are continuously produced in our bodies in response to polysaccharides on the surface of gram-negative bacteria in our microbiome. Microbiome, what up? And these antibodies are very specific to certain sugars. Then there are these things called alphamers, which recruit these antibodies to the surface of the bacteria and they induce these, what these are called anti-gal antibodies. And so they these alphamers can induce this anti-gal mediated complement deposition and hence result in killing. And they first demonstrated the power of these antibodies when they actually did interspecies transplants. So for example, putting like a pig kidney into a monkey and seeing immediate natural rejection and then just evaluating how that is mediated throughout the body and just looking at this incredible antibody response. So these antibodies we're interested are polyclonal. They're present in very high titer in everybody. They actually said that these are the most abundant antibodies, antibody class circulating in the human body, which is very, very interesting. So what is ABX01? It is a technology platform that's based on these alphamers, which are, again, these antibody recruiting molecules. And so what they do is they redirect natural immunity to the surface of the pathogen of interest and they enhance rapid clearance of said pathogen by your immune system. And I just think this is very fascinating because we always talk about infections. You know, you need good antibiotics, but you need an immune system. What kills fungus? Neutrophils. <laughs> what prevents gram-negative terribleness? Rocking antibodies, right? And so this is ex- essentially augmenting your immune response or adding, or adding an immune response in those who would be immunocompromised and enhancing this clearance. So they consist of essentially this targeting domain, They're going to bind, ABX01 will bind to the surface of gram-negative bacteria through this complicated process of chemical linkers that I would love to continue to wax poetic about, but in the interest of time, I will not. Um, But it recruits significant levels of these anti-gal antibodies to that gram-negative bacteria surface and results in killing. And if that wasn't cool enough, it not only has this immune-mediated effect, which can augment killing, but it also has intrinsic antibiotic effect and intrinsic antibacterial effect. And they looked at this using knockout mice, so the neutropenic mice, and they looked at the alphamer technology alone, and that they saw about a two-log drop in bacterial colony-forming units. And then they added in the antibody response, and they got an additional three-log kill. So this is synergistic And they even said that if you have some kind of technology like this in, you know, give or take, you have to look at the bug, the drug, the patient, but you could, in theory, dose reduce your antibiotics, even as much to a six fold dose reduction, because you're getting kill at sub MIC concentrations because of this synergy. So 
They call it a quote, novel, highly disruptive immunotherapeutic technology with broad spectrum antimicrobial activity that enhances immune recruitment. End quote. Put that on a postcard. I think that is awesome. So just a very neat thing. And I look forward to seeing the development in that space. I think we just need to give a round of applause to Aaron for trying to explain what was a very complex presentation on the drug development of this compound. Kudos. 100%. That is one I listened to not sped up, but the opposite, you know, where it like slows it down for you. And it was still difficult. So like when the, rab- yep. like when the rabbit goes across the screen as you watch it, uh, or I guess the snail. Yeah. The snail guy, like on your iPhone. Um, I'm not going to lie. I-, I watched that presentation probably four or five times. So thank you. I appreciate that because I- it was insanely cool, but insanely complicated. The other thing that is insanely cool is how we'll be back next week with another episode of Breakpoints to finish out our ID Week recap. That episode next week is going to cover the practice-changing trials that were reviewed by three stellar presenters. And then we are going to cover the topics that we found most interesting or unique that may have flown under your radar during ID Week in our prized I Feel Nerdy segment. So thanks for listening to the late-breaking trials and the pipeline antibacterials that we were able to cover in this first episode, and we can't wait to be back with you again next week. Thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. This episode was co-hosted by all the Breakpoints hosts, Erin McCreary, Julianne Justo, Rachel Britt, and Jillian Hayes. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, Erin McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Drs. Jillian Hayes and Jeanette Bouchard. Our production team includes Veronica Zafant and Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.